0: But turn over in your Bibles to Romans. uh, We're working our way through this uh, incredible book. And uh, today I want to speak to you about biblical servanthood. Biblical servanthood. On May 24th, 1738, there was a discouraged missionary who went you might say very unwillingly, to a religious gathering in London. And as he recounts, there was a miracle that took place there. True miracle. He writes, about a quarter before nine, he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That missionary was John Wesley. And the message he heard that evening that convicted his heart In such a way was actually from the the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on this book, the Book of Romans. And just a few months before, John Wesley had written in his journal this I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? (laughs) He wrote that in his journal just months before he visited this gathering where he was gloriously converted. That evening in, in Aldersgate Street, his question was answered and the result was the great Wesleyan revival that swept throughout England, transformed an entire nation. The exciting thing, beloved, is that Paul is still, God is still, through Paul's writings here in Romans, he still is transforming people's lives. Just the way he transformed Martin Luther's life through this book, just the way he transformed John Wesley's life through this book. And the one scripture, above all, that brought Luther out of mere religion and into the joy of salvation by grace through faith was Romans 17, where it says, the just shall live by what? Faith. The just shall live by faith. And you had the whole Protestant Reformation, the, the Wesleyan Revival, were all fruit of this letter written by Paul from Corinth as he overlooked the Agora there and saw all the sin and decadence of that society in about the year A.D. 56. We know the letter was carried to the Christians gathered in Rome by one of the deaconesses there at the church, Sister Phoebe. Tells us that in verse 1 of chapter 16. And it's kind of exciting to think that you and I can read and study the same inspired letter uh, that brought power and salvation to Luther and Wesley. And we can have the same power of the Holy Spirit that taught them, he can teach us here this morning. You and I can experience revival in our hearts, in our homes, in our churches. And pray that this message that is found in this letter of Paul to the believers there at Rome will grip your heart as it's gripped men of faith in the past. And so in the opening verses, we've seen that Paul introduced himself there to the believers in Rome. And uh, some he probably knew personally because down, back in Chapter 16, he kind of addresses them. But for the most part, he was a stranger to them. They no doubt heard about him, but he wasn't one that was uh, familiar with them personally, except for a couple people there. And so this morning, he, he kind of, we're going to start in verse 8 and, and work our way through uh, up to verse 16. And we're going to do this in two weeks, lest you think we're going to try to do all that today. But I want to read our text for us out of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, and you can follow along in your Bibles. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last be coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Incredible portion of Scripture. Amazing how today, when you talk about serving the Lord, there's a lot of different reasons, and ways that people can serve the Lord. Um, Some of those reasons or motives are good. Some of those reasons or motives are bad. And we know that because there's going to be people that stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this? Haven't I done that? They're going to be recounting all the works that they did. And what is he going to say to them? Depart. I never knew you. So their works are going to be all for naught. I would say those are works done with the wrong motivation. Well, what are some of those motivating factors that maybe can creep into our lives? And this is just a way of introduction to kind of set the stage here for what Paul is going to tell us about biblical servanthood. Because if you're going to serve the Lord, let's do it the right way, right? Let's do it in a biblical way. Well, one of the wrong motives that people have in serving the Lord, I think, is legalism. You see that oftentimes when someone first comes to know the Lord. Maybe they come out of a seedy background and they come to know the Lord and, boy, they they, they become very legalistic. And they begin to judge everybody around them that's not doing everything the way they're doing it. They try to keep a list of do's and don'ts. And they think if somehow if they mess up, if they miss their devotion day or, or they miss a time of prayer, that somehow God is going to hold that in judgment against them. So they become very legalistic. They think that God, what God requires of you is not just salvation by grace through faith, but somehow you've got to do a dance to get into the kingdom of God. And if you don't do The dance the right way, you'll never make it. You know, this is something that's not even uncommon with most world religions or cults. The Mormons believe that if you're going to be in good stead with their God, that you should go on a two-year missionary journey. And they hold to that very legalistically. It's required of them to do it. And if you don't, you probably won't make it to heaven. That's how serious it is. Now, that's very honorable that they would give up two years of their life to go and, and do this. As a matter of fact, my, my nephew Luke, who some of you know, was a recruiter in Utah when he was in the Marine Corps. And he said it drove him nuts. Because he'd run into young men that are just eager to go into the military, but they couldn't do it. They had to go do their two-year missionary service first, as their church told them to do. A very legalistic mindset. And even within the framework of, of Christianity, there's some people today who serve the Lord strictly because if they don't, God's going to punish him. That's, that's a wrong motivation. That, that's not their correct motivation. They want to keep God from kind of breaking their little bubble and making life miserable for them. And so if they do everything right and in the right order, and if they do this and do that, and and they're just doing it out of a legalistic mindset. I think, secondly, some people do it for esteem. You know, some people get involved in in service of the Lord because they want to make themselves look good. They want that prestige. The Bible says that they seek the chief seats. Playing the role of Diotrephes, who loved, says, to have the what? Preeminence, 3 John 9 tells us. And there is some of that. I mean, there's there's something to be said about someone who gives up their life to serve the Lord. But we never do it to be esteemed by others. That would be a wrong motivation. Thirdly, I think pride plays a lot in the wrong motivation factor when it comes to serving the Lord. There are some people who want to serve the Lord just because they want other people to look at them and look at them as being religious. I was on a plane one time and I was sitting next to this middle-aged man and we got around to the conversation, well, what do you do? And so, you know, the, the... Simple answers, well, I'm a minister, I'm a pastor, whatever, but I don't like to usually give that answer. So usually I'll say something like, I'm a teacher. Oh, really, what do you teach? And then you can kind of explain to them, well, actually, I I teach uh, some information about an incredible book. You go on and, you know, you got to got them on the hook then. Well, what's the name of the book? Well, actually, it's not just a book. It's actually a compilation of many books. And I'm surprised, you know, you don't know about this book. Well, what is it? What is it? And finally, you can tell them, and they're kind of like, oh, okay, you know. But it's interesting to me that when I told this one individual, finally it was out, oh, oh, you pastor at church, yeah. Well, where's your collar? Don't you wear a robe? I said, no, I don't, you know. Wear a tie, because my wife makes me to, but other than that, makes me, but, you know, um, that's about it. So it's kind of an important thing to some people. They, they look at that, that external trappings of religion, and they say, oh, well, if you're going to be this, then you have to do that. And it's more to kind of feed their own ego, their own pride. I'm not against pastors that wear robes or collars, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying I think some of them do it for the wrong reason. Um, I was talking to a police officer one time in Southern California, Riverside County, where I was serving as a chaplain, and uh, he said, look, we have little placards that we can give you to put in your car. So if you go out to a crime scene or whatever, they'll know you're a chaplain. And he told me, well, don't, just don't abuse it. And I said, well, how would I abuse it? What do, you, what do you mean? He goes, well, we had a chaplain last year that basically he would pull into handicap zones. He put his little placard there because it was closer to the, the front of the store. And uh, he got a ticket, and he ended up telling the, oh, you can't give me a ticket, I'm a chaplain. You know, which was just, it created a big problem. See, there's some people that have the wrong motivation. But I think also there's pressure. There's pressure that comes from peers. Sometimes maybe you grew up in a Christian family, and your brothers or sister or or maybe called to full-time ministry or doing something in ministry and you feel under pressure to do it just to keep up with them. Or maybe your parents are making you do this. You know, there's an expectation there. Um, Any of those reasons would be wrong motivating factors to get involved in service of the Lord. Um, The last one is not surprising, money. There's a lot of people that that get into the Jesus business, and, and that's unfortunately what it's become nowadays. You can see these individuals, a lot of times on Christian TV, asking for your money to support um, their lavish lifestyle. Um, they're simply out for the almighty dollar. That's all that matters to them. But they put up a good front, and so people follow them. They're deceived, and uh, you know, that's, that's the way that works. That's a wrong motivating factor to serve the Lord. And so God kind of says, there are some motivating factors that are good, that are right. And I think the one thing that Paul wants these folks to understand is that, look, he's not like the ministers that he was a part of when in his religion of Judaism, when it was purely external trappings. It was purely the law. It was purely the robes they wore. It was, it was the guys that went out in the courtyard dressed in all the robes and pointed to the poor guy over in the corner and said, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. I'm righteous. Look at that poor person. And Paul was familiar with that. And so he constantly, I think, in his ministry wanted people to know, look, if you're going to serve the Lord, serve him with the right motivation. And that's really what he gives us here. He gives us the right motivating factor for biblical servanthood. Paul was a a shepherd. Paul was someone who God was using to communicate his truth to these people. Not just in Rome, but all over. And it was important for him to kind of lay down some foundation with them because for the most part, the Christians in Rome really didn't know him that well. And so he wanted them to know, hey, look, I'm not coming in here with flattering speech, and I'm not after your money, I'm not after this, I'm not after that. I just want to communicate the gospel. I just want you to hear the gospel of Christ. Paul cared about their spiritual maturity. And he knew from his own background what it was like to be part of the the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. He was familiar with all that. And he was familiar with all the religious trappings that went along with that. And he understood that it was purely, for the most part, external for those folks. It was physical. It was superficial. It was temporary. It wasn't something they took home for them. And that's where I think we need to be realistic as Christians. And hopefully our life here within these four walls matches our life at work and matches our life at school and matches our life when we walk out of here to a lost and dying world. Because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for authenticity. They're not looking for a shell game. They're not looking for a sham. They've had enough of that. And so look at verse 9 as we kind of build up to this We'll go back to verse 8, but I want you to notice here in verse 9 where he says, for God is my witness. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm accountable to God. I'm not coming to you with any wrong motives at all. God is my witness. He says this, whom I serve with what? My spirit, right? With, I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. He was saying that his service came from where? It didn't come from some list he created, okay, yeah, go to Rome, checklist. No. It didn't come from something he felt he had to do because God wasn't going to love him if he didn't do it. He didn't do it because they were pressuring him to come. He wanted them to know, hey, I wanted to come many times, but God prevented it. No, he says, he did it, he serves with his spirit. He was telling them, you know what? The desire to to meet and to, to teach and to spread the gospel comes from within me. It's a holy motivation, it's pure. It's from the Lord. What motivated Paul wasn't what people thought motivated him. It wasn't peer pressure, it wasn't legalism, it wasn't money. But a heart motivated basically to accomplish the will of God. And when you look at at Paul's spirit, he really, you know, that that idea has the you know the whole heart, the, the mind, the soul, spirit. They're all involved in service. I mean, that's what should be when we when we're serving the Lord, we should be in it with everything. You remember in high school when you were growing up, maybe you had these, I don't know, back east we did. Football was a big thing and different, you know, and, and usually the Friday of the big game. During the day, we were kind of excited because maybe in the morning you had classes, but right afternoon you'd have an assembly, right? And it was kind of a... Uh, uh, you know, a spirit assembly or a rally and they'd bring the football team in and, you know, you'd have some music and, you know, you'd hope you'd beat the team that night. It was, it was a big assembly and the whole idea was, hey, let's get really, really emotionally kind of jacked up here over this game so we can go out and win it. And you wanted the whole student body there. And everybody was excited. And you wore your school colors and your letter jacket or whatever you had. And everybody was into that. That's, that's the idea here of Paul's spirit. You know, when you watch a game like the one we see this afternoon, I'm sure you'll see a couple plays. And you'll go, boy, that, that guy's really in it to win it. Do you see how he hit that guy? And they'll show the replay over and over. What do we call it? We call it spirited play, right? You're not going to see football players out on the field going, oh, yeah, okay, oh, there he goes. You know, No, they're going to be exerting all their effort to help, hopefully, help their team win. And it means that he had his whole being, his, his whole self was involved in this effort. And that's kind of the idea. And when it talks here of service, Paul's service, it's important we understand what he's really Talking about that that word to serve, it comes from a Greek word, which basically you can also translate it worship. When we serve the Lord, it's, it's a way of worshiping him. See, sometimes today in the church, we get our worship all mixed up. We think the worship ends when the last note of the song is played. Oh, now we get to the teaching. <laughs> no, this is all worship. Everything we do here on Sunday morning is focused around worshiping God. God, serving God. See, that's the idea. When you come here Sunday mornings, you shouldn't just be coming with the idea of, okay, well, I hope they sing my song or the song that I like or the hymn that I like or sing the style of music I like or I hope he teaches on something that I enjoy or speaks to my self-needs and, and I hope somebody says something to me and encourages me or, and prays for me. If you come with that kind of attitude, you're going to walk out going, man, it's a rotten day. But if you come with the attitude of, you know what, I'm going to come to worship. I'm going to come to serve. I'm going to come to give to the body of Christ. It transforms your whole morning. Because for the first time, you're not sitting there criticizing every little wrong note displayed or every song that you didn't like or every passage that maybe he misinterpreted or misspoke or whatever it might be. Pretty soon you're going, wow, this, this is good. I'm going I'm to take this and take what I can and, and use it to serve. Use it to minister to somebody i going to look around and see who else needs to be ministered to. And see, by doing that, he really separated himself from the guys that were just being paid. that just came through the door and kind of like, yeah, okay. You know, I used to get so frustrated. Sometimes I'd call people to come speak at our church. And they'd be all willing and everything. And the bottom line, well, you know, I do have a speaking fee of $6,500. It's like, What? You have a speaking fee? Oh, yeah, yeah. Really? How about if you just come on as a, as a love offering? I don't know. Not going to do that. That kind of weeds them out right there. If that's all they're interested in is to get their little fee for what they say, we're not interested in having them. It's funny because sometimes the guys come and they'll, we'll have a, free, a love offering for them. And we give them the check at the end of the weekend, because everything that comes in is a love offering to, to those people, and some of them say, "You know, I feel guilty taking this this i said well that 's what came in I, you know it didn 't all come from our church. we have other people coming to these events they they like your ministry they 're going to give to it and' it 's refreshing to hear somebody. Say, well, I don't care how many people you have or how much the offer. It doesn't matter. I just want to come and communicate the word of God. You don't see that very much today. And so Paul's spirit and his service were one that he really wanted to honor the Lord. And that's really what that means. That word worship is not just about religious trappings or stained glass windows or pipe organs or anything like that. It's about really giving back to God. Showing God his worship. And so it it can mean worship, it can mean service, that phrase. And the greatest worship that you'll ever render to God is when you serve him with the right motivating factors. In Romans chapter 12, and this is just Paul kind of speaking to this issue, he says, speaking about his commitment here, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living <laughs> sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul said, you know what? If you're going to serve the Lord, do it with a full commitment. There's nothing more frustrating than having somebody, quote, wanting to serve the Lord, but they're half-hearted about it. I mean, a lot of times I'll just say, you know what, just go home. I, I, it just frustrates me. And it frustrates other people who are, are in it. Not that God can't use that, but it's, 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 you know, it's kind of like the guy at work that just kind of dwiddles around all day and doesn't really do anything. <laughs> And you're doing your job, and then as soon as the boss comes in, oh, well, he gets to work. You know, nobody likes that guy. And so when we serve the Lord, we should do it with a whole commitment, a whole heart. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this. Not only just serve him with total commitment, all right, but serve him to the fullest. Serving the Lord should be at the top of our priority list as Christians. That's just the way it should be. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and what? Put no confidence in the flesh. See, Paul, what's he doing there? He's making a distinction between the internal, right, spiritual worship, and the external, which is fleshly worship. When you serve the Lord, when you worship the Lord, are you doing it purely in a fleshly way? Or are you doing it in a spiritual way? In Acts 27, Paul here is in the midst of the storm of the Mediterranean Sea, and he says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Listen to this. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I what? Worship. We have to know who we're serving or 2 Timothy 1.3, Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. No wrong motivating factors there, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. What he was saying was, you know what, you can look inside my heart and see that I'm serving God with a whole heart. That I've committed my life to it. Paul's service was an act of worship. It was deep. It was genuine. It was honest. I mean, there's always some things in ministry and service that we don't like to do. But let's do it as unto the Lord. You know, so many times in the church, I I find it interesting that, you know, most churches are needy churches. They have a lot of things that need to get done and very few people to do them. I think percentage-wise our church is pretty well i mean we're a smaller church but i think a majority of our people are involved somewhere in ministry which is encouraging but i think sometimes it's it's frustrating when you make a need known and maybe you see somebody that kind of has a gifting toward that and and rather than just roll the sleeves up and yeah let's get at it you know well brother let me pray about this and We should be willing to serve the Lord. Second Timothy 2.22, Paul said to Timothy, who was kind of, kind of going back and forth with his faith, he said, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord. And then he says this, from a pure heart. Our service to the Lord should be done from a pure heart. Very important that we see that and we understand that. Well, Paul begins here in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, and he begins to kind of list off these things that he says are needed for biblical servanthood. Characters of a servant. And the first one there is in verse 8. He says, first, I thank. <laughs> I thank. It's a thankful spirit. If you're going to be used of God in any kind of ministry, the one thing you need is a thankful thankful spirit right you need to have a thankful heart and that's how the apostle Paul was you can't really go through any of his epistles where he's not expressing thanks to God sometimes in ministry people go through negative experiences we all do we all have and sometimes those experiences can taint you and you walk away going, ah, I'm never going to get involved in that, or I'm never going to do this again. Never. No, you know what? Change your attitude. Thank God that he brought you through that experience. Thank God that hopefully he gave you the wisdom not to repeat the experience. Don't use the experience to kind of just pull back and say, eh, well, every time I get involved in ministry, I get hurt. My feelings get hurt. Paul never did that. He said, I'm so thankful for what God has done in me. I, I just want to thank God even for you. (laughs) And you notice he's not thanking them, right? He's not thanking them. That's really the, the 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 source here is he says, I thank my what? My God. I thank my God. He says that in Philippians 1, 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He says in Philemon 4, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. See, Paul was so in tune, it seems, with God's purposes that they became the source of his thanksgiving. He always knew, okay, God has a purpose in this, whether it's good, bad, whatever, and I'm just going to thank God that he's allowing me to go through this. In Acts chapter 20, verse 23, Paul said this, The Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I mean, even when he became a prisoner, beloved, he maintained a thankful spirit. I don't know about you, but when things don't go my way, or I find myself in a fix, or in a a troubled situation... I'll just be frank with you. A lot of times, the thankful spirit is not what I'm thinking about. (laughs) Or I may be thinking about it, but it's not happening. Usually, it's kind of like, why is this happening? You know, why am I stuck in traffic? I'm trying to go visit somebody in the hospital. Here I am stuck on 101. Somebody had to have an accident, didn't they? Oh, man, just figures, you know. That happened to me yesterday, last night, as a matter of fact finally got to the hospital and I realized, what am I doing? Why, why do I have this attitude? (laughs) You know, why, why am I frustrated? So, you know, why aren't I praying for the people in the accident? You know, that would be a pastoral thing to do. I mean, especially as a chaplain, you think somehow, no, I'm just, you know, I want to get to the hospital and visit this person and, you know, they're preventing me. We get so self-centered sometimes See, he wasn't focused on them. He said, you know what? I thank my God. I thank my God. That was his source. Regardless of his condition, Paul always maintained a thankful heart to the Lord. And that's important to understand when we we talk about servanthood, especially when we talk about biblical servanthood. Because we're talking about being real, right? And in, you know what? When, in churches, when you get involved in ministry, you're dealing with other sinners just like yourself. And sometimes things are said, things are done, there's tension, there's weird things that go on, whatever it might be. And we can turn and we can run and say, oh, I can't believe my feelings are hurt. Or we can say, you know what, God, thank you for this situation. Help me to grow through it. Help me to understand more about these folks. Help me understand more about myself. See, he was constantly filled with joy because his joy had nothing to do with his present circumstances. Wouldn't you love to be able to get to that point in your life? You know, when you meet somebody that's that way, it's almost like, come on, are you seriously this joyful all the time? You know, what do you really like? You know, what do you like when you get up in the morning, you know, and you don't feel, I mean, are you still joyful? And there are some people that have really gotten to that point in their Christian life. They've really embraced everything. For the most part, they come across, and that's a wonderful place to be. We should all long to be there. He was concerned about one thing, about preaching and proclaiming the cause of Christ. That's all that mattered to this guy. We look at his source, who was God, and then you you say there, first I thank my God, and then he says, through Jesus Christ. He's the mediator. If it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have anything. We wouldn't have a relationship with the source, who is God. We wouldn't be here this morning. We wouldn't have our sins forgiven and paid for. We wouldn't have his Holy Spirit residing within us. See it all rests on who our faith is in. Is it in a church? Is it in a denomination? Is it in a pastor? Is it in an elder? Is it in, you know, some religion somewhere? Or is it in Christ? Jesus himself said in John 14:6, "No man what comes unto the Father but how? Through me. I'm the mediator. I'm the gatekeeper. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you understand, apart from Jesus Christ, God could be nothing to us but a consuming fire of judgment and wrath? That would be it. You would be, I would be condemned to hell forever. There'd be no hope of forgiveness. There'd be no hope of salvation. The only reason we can approach God is that Jesus Christ died in our behalf, on our behalf, in our place. And Paul served his God through Christ with a heart of thanksgiving because he understood that. He understood his source was from the Lord, and he understood the only way that he could have that source in God was through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that this morning, I pray that God would make that truth reality to you. If you're trusting in anything other than the work of Christ for your salvation, you're lost. Third thing here, having to do with the thankful spirit. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And then he says this, for all of you. (laughs) That's the the scope of his thanksgiving. How many of you can say that? I just thank God for all of you. Who's popping into your mind right now? Well, yeah, accept that person. (laughs) Right? I mean, we all have that. Paul was was pure in heart to the point where he said, no, you know what, good, bad, ugly, whatever, I'm thanking God for you. Doesn't matter. It was all encompassing. And what he wanted to show these believers here in Rome was that his heart was was toward all of them. He wasn't coming there as a Pharisee saying, I'm only going to talk to the religious elite. No. He understood he had been forgiven, that all his sins had been paid for, not because of his goodness, but because of God's grace. And he understood, hey, we're all on the level playing field here. I mean, this this area up here doesn't make you holy. This is not a holy place. I mean, we, we get these trappings sometimes in our head and we think that somehow if, if, if someone's a pastor or an elder or on the worship team or, or serving in a church, that somehow they're, they're, they're holy. No, that doesn't make you holy. The only thing that can make you holy, beloved, is, is the forgiveness that comes through the mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all unholy. We're all full of sin. We're all on our way to hell. The only way we can be saved by that is through God, by God through Jesus Christ. And so he wanted them to know in Rome that, hey, I'm not just thankful for some of you, (laughs) I'm thankful for all of you. And it's, you can ask yourself the question are you truly thankful? I mean, he was thankful even in the midst of Roman persecution. And when you look at different churches, they're known for different things. I pray that our church is known for its thankfulness to the Lord. That we would be known as a church that stands on God's word and God's word alone. A thankful heart is essential for true spiritual biblical service do you have a thankful heart are you overwhelmed with thanksgiving for what god has done for you because if you are i guarantee you the bitterness and the resentment will fade away it's hard to be bitter and resentful and thankful it just doesn't go together Ask God to heal your heart. Ask God to remove the bitterness or the resentment. Maybe that you're feeling even toward God. Toward somebody else. Because there's so much to be thankful for, you're really missing out. And see, the enemy doesn't play fair. Right? So... In the midst of your service to God, he kind of comes alongside of you and whispers things in your ear. You know, you, you deserve a lot better than this. You don't have to be thankful. People should be thanking you. For all you do. See, and he plays these mind games with us. And we need to step back and say, no, wait a minute. There's a lot to be thankful for. Make a list if it helps you. Sit down. Take 15, 20 minutes, maybe an hour. Start writing down on the list. What am I thankful for? And see how far you can go. I bet you'll be surprised. It's hard to stop. Thankful spirit. Secondly, Paul talks about here... In verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you in my prayers always. Paul here really was almost kind of redundant in his phrasing here. He says, Without ceasing, and yet I do it always. He wants them to know that, you know what? Uh, without ceasing, here is the negative emphasis, always is the positive emphasis. Paul was basically telling them, You know what? I'm, I'm covering all the bases with you. I'm praying for you all the time. I'm that concerned for you. And he says, God is my witness. They didn't, remember, they don't really know him, they don't know him personally. And he called on God to really validate his ministry to them because they were maybe a little skeptical. And he's saying, hey, you know what? God is my witness. He knows my heart. Just as God witnessed about Christ's public ministry. He also testifies concerning the public ministry of Paul. And basically he's saying, hey, this is... I'm doing this because... God is is working through me. You notice there, he says in my prayers too. He wanted them to know that he was praying for them. Do you pray for people? Do you spend time in prayer for people in the body, people in your family, maybe people that don't know the Lord? Do we do it with diligence? Do we do it with regularity? Or do we just do it when we don't have enough else to do? Or we feel guilty because we're not doing it. Prayer is one of the spiritual disciplines probably that we all struggle with at some some level. And here you see Paul praying for a group of people he never met. I started praying a couple weeks ago for some of the people we'll meet on this trip to India. I don't know who they are. But I want to pray that God would somehow connect us. That we could be an encouragement to one another. That somehow we find that that common ground in Christ. That somehow our mutual churches could benefit from us meeting. We never met these people. And so he says, you know what? I'm remembering you in my prayers And that wasn't an uncommon thing for Paul. He says it over and over and over again. The early apostles devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we all know that verse, pray without ceasing. Somebody once said, do you really believe that? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, well, how do you you ever do that? And I said, well, and I think we talked about this in our men's group a couple weeks ago, at least in our group we did, we talked about how prayer is not just a task that you do. It's not just an activity. It's an attitude. Okay? Prayer is an attitude. It's an attitude of dependence upon God. You don't have to drop your knees and close your eyes when you're praying. It's an attitude of dependence upon God. There's nothing wrong with that, but that'd be a little hard doing on the freeway. You know, maybe that's why that guy had the accident. I don't know. You know, he's praying with his eyes closed or something. But I told the grandkids one time we were going somewhere, and I said, well, let me pray that we have a safe trip or whatever. And I think it was Mason kind of said, Grandpa, you're not going to close your eyes, are you? I said, no, buddy, I'm not going to close my eyes. You know, we can pray as an attitude anywhere. And that's what God desires us to do. We're called to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, Ephesians Paul writes in Ephesians 3, It's for this reason that I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you ever struggle with what to pray, open up Ephesians chapter 3 and just read verses 14 to 19. That's a great prayer from the Apostle Paul. Or you find it over in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, and that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And so we, we see this theme for Paul over and over and over again. Paul was a man who had a concerned spirit, and he knew his concerns drove him to the Lord. Now, you can be concerned about a lot of things, right? And not go to the Lord. What's that called? worry right worry doesn't get you anywhere nobody's ever been helped by somebody worrying for them when's the last time you told us boy i'm really worried for you well thanks but what good does that do them you know i told that to my wife one time and she goes well you must not have been that worried you didn't even call find out what was going on so i had to eat my words i thought well yeah you're right i must not have been that worried so a concerned spirit. Next one there is a willing spirit. Look at verse 10. He says, Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, right, that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul not only prayed for these believers in Rome, but he also wanted them to be part of the whole situation, you know. Sometimes we we pray for things, right? Pray for, well, I just pray for my neighbor, pray that he'll get saved. Praying for him for ten years. When's the last time you walked over to and said hi to your neighbor? Well, I don't don't want really to talk to him. You don't talk to him, but you pray for him. Oh yeah, pray for him religiously. Maybe stop praying and just go speak to them. You know, I mean, that might be a good first step. So many times we're willing, we're unwilling to to do anything, but we'll we'll be be prayer warriors. And we have to be both, beloved. That's what we're called to do. We have to have willing spirits to serve the Lord. I think sometimes that we we forget that, you know, we want to kind of look spiritual with our prayer life. Maybe we're not serving. <laughs> and, and that's kind of an oxymoron. You can't do that. Uh, God wants us to do both. He wants us to be like the prophet Isaiah when God tapped him on the shoulder. What did he say? Here I am. Send me. I'm ready to go. I'll do whatever you want to do. That's, that's the attitude of a servant. And you, you, you have to understand that because if you don't, then you're going to be serving God in your little box. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I feel comfortable in this box. So as a result of that, I'm willing to do anything in this box. God, don't ask me to step outside this box because I'm not going to do it. I'll just be disobedient. Disobedience before God is sin. I don't feel comfortable doing that ministry, so I'm just not going to do it. Maybe God's trying to stretch you. Maybe God's trying to move and work you. Maybe God's trying to show you that, maybe that's not the ministry for you, but there's another one. But see, it all starts with what—a willingness, right? There's some people that, in this economy, especially, it's tough. They're unemployed, and they've been unemployed for sometimes months and months and years. And when you talk to them, you can tell—you you can tell, man—they're just—they're just depressed. They're just—they don't have any self-worth. They're just, they just—they just feel so down on themselves. And when you ask them, where have you you looked anywhere? Well, and they're kind of looking for their little, their job. They're looking for what they've always done, and they've never done anything else, and they're unwilling to look at anything else. And I always tell them, look, just get a job. Go to Orchard Supply, go to Costco, go to Home Depot, get some job. At least you've got a job. At least then you, it may be a disposable job. You can quit it when the other job comes, but at least get a job and that, that maintain your, your, your kind of willingness to be part of the, the system and pull in an income. But when you totally give up, when you're unwilling to do anything other than what you feel comfortable doing, you're really restricting the way God can use you at all. Next thing, there's a submissive spirit. He says, by God's will that I may come to you. This is a big one for a lot of people. We talk of that word submission. We don't like that word. Nobody does. See, Paul didn't want to go do his own deal, right? He just didn't want to go and and say, Ah, you know what, God, I don't care what you want me to do. I want to go to Rome. I want to do this. I want to do that. No, Paul was all about doing what God wanted him to do. He was really driven by his commitment to the will of God. And where do you think... He got that. <laughs> he got it from Christ. The, Lord Jesus Christ. the Lord Jesus Christ himself was Paul's model. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. In The Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he's on his face before his father and he says, Oh, my father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of suffering that we're going to celebrate here in a few moments. The cup that contained all the beatings. The, the cup that contained all the slander and the spitting and the pulling of the beard and the thorns and the brow and the mocking. The cup that included God turning his back on his own son. I mean, most people would say, yeah, you can just pass that cup by. I don't need to drink out of that cup. But not Christ. He says, you know what? Not as I will, but as thou wilt. He was the model for Paul. He's our model. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, he was showing the disciples how to pray, and he says, thy kingdom come, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Paul really conformed his life to the will of God. Whatever God wanted, Paul was willing to do it. He was utterly concerned about serving him. I remember in Bible college, my biggest fear was that I would graduate from Bible college and God would send me to some jungle somewhere with bugs and snakes and dirt and not running water and outdoor pits for bathrooms. And and those of you that know me know that I'm, you know, I, I'm not Mr. Camper, okay? I mean, you can take your little tent and stuff and you go have fun. Uh, I'll, I'll spend the night in the Iwani Hotel, okay? That's my idea of camping, okay? That's just <laughs> the way I am. Uh, not that I don't enjoy it. I'll go out and sleep under the stars for a night as long as I can go and take a nice hot shower in the morning and, you know, I'm good. But the idea of... Uh, Going out for weeks and weeks on end and not being able to have those comforts it just pushes me over the edge. And my biggest fear was, God, you're going to send me to be some missionary somewhere in some mosquito infested jungle. And it wasn't until I said, Lord, if that's what you want, okay. I mean, God brought me to the point where it's like because I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't go to Bible college to become a pastor. That's not what I did. I went to Bible college to learn more about the Bible. And when I was there, God kind of threw me into a youth group my senior year because you had to do an internship. And there was a little church, Fair Havens Baptist Church in Spring Valley, California. Pastor Jack was the the, the pastor. And they needed somebody to teach their senior high group. So I called him on the phone. He said, yeah, come on by Sunday. We're looking for somebody," I said. "All right," so I showed up Sunday morning, thinking, "Well, this is just be interesting." He meets me at the door and says, "Here's the book. They're downstairs." I'm like, "I mean, he knew the college and stuff, but I mean, he, that was it." And I'm like, "The book? Who's downstairs?" <laughs> well, the junior high and high school kids. Well, what do I just go through the book? We're on lesson four or whatever. I'm like, okay. I went down there, come to find out his son, who was a little older than me, was actually teaching the class. So I walk into the class and I'm like, uh, I guess I'm here to teach. And I got the little thing and he's like, well, who are you, you know? Oh, I'm Steve. Oh, you're Steve. Yeah, they said you might stop by. Would well, you wanna to teach today? I said, well, who are you? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm uh, what's his name? Anyway, it wasn't his name, Jerry. I can't remember, now it's gonna drive me nuts. But he said, I'm the pastor's son. I'm like, you're the pastor's son? And you're teaching the class? I said, you can just go ahead and teach today. That's fine. Well, I'll teach half and you can do it. You know, we'll check it out. I said, all right. I said, well, who do we have here? And we're going around this little circle, small group of kids, about 12 kids. And one girl, oh, my name's Rhonda. I'm the pastor's daughter. I'm like, oh, my God. i'm I'm jack i'm the pastor's son too you know all three kids were in there and i'm thinking oh man i'm not going to be here very long i had never done that before i mean i went through bible college, but i never taught a class i never even saw a curriculum for for sunday school but you know what the idea here is that somehow i was i was willing and i was willing to submit to whatever god had for me and that's the attitude that god desires and that's what christ has and that's what paul's example was too he says in Acts 21, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am already, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. You know what was going on here? Paul was being told by everybody that if he went to Jerusalem, Paul, don't go. If you go to Jerusalem and they're going to beat you up, they're going to imprison you, it's going to be the end. Don't do it. And Paul, that's what he's saying. Why why are you breaking my heart? I'm going to do what God wants me to do. If that means I'm in prison, that means I'm in prison. And so his disciples finally said, you know what? This guy's a lost cause. Just go ahead, go do whatever you want. If that's what you feel God's letting you do, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, and there's a fine line there between our own wisdom and the wisdom of God, and we have to be sensitive to that. Because when I got the little email from the State Department saying, you know, now it's probably not the best time to go to Thailand, <laughs> I said, I told my wife, and she's like, oh, we shouldn't go. I said, eh, you know, it is; it's in the Lord's hands, whatever it is. But then the next day, the next morning, we get a. Email from Randy and Edie saying, "Eh, we really don't want you to come right now. It wouldn't be a good experience. I mean, I could say, well, we're going anyway. Well, that might not be wise. So you have to be willing to submit your will to the father's will. And some people say, you know what? If God's got this all worked out, if God's got a will and we're just kind of going to submit to it, then what do we even pray about anything for? Why do we do any of this? And I think it's important to understand that, you know what, we're just a small little piece of the, the bigger picture. And, and God desires to use us in a way, and, and we submit to His will, and we, we do what He desires us to do. You know, this morning here on the worship team, if, if everybody else was playing, you know, uh, Blessed Assurance, and singing Blessed Assurance, and I'm sitting at the piano, while they're doing that singing, Mary Had a Little Lamb, something's wrong. Something's not right. See, sometimes we want to make everyone else under our will, and that's not what Paul was willing to do. He said, no, I'm under God's will. And God, whatever you want, hey, if that's the song they're playing, I'm going to play right along with them. We have to be a, have a submissive spirit. The last thing here, quickly, is a loving spirit. A loving spirit. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wanted them to know that, you know what? Love involves giving. The Apostle Paul wanted to give them something. He wanted to, to demonstrate to them that he cared. That's, that's what God did. That's why we celebrate communion, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. He gave his only begotten son. True love always involves giving. When you talk to a couple who's having issues in the relationship, you can get down real quick to, okay, who's not giving? I guarantee you, one party's not giving. A loving spirit always involves giving. Secondly, it always involves giving a gift. It always involves giving a gift. You know, it's easy to say, Well, we're going to give, but what are you going to give? He wanted them to give them the gift of grace, impart to them the gift of grace, a spiritual gift. It's that word really has the idea it's a grace gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit. In Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, Paul referred to God blessing Israel. And he said, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Or in Romans 12, verse 6, he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. See, we all have Gifts. We all have spiritual gifts that God has given to us. The question is, are you using those to give to others? Whether it's time, talent, treasure. And the last thing here, God's love, love loving spirit involves giving the word of God. And that's where he focuses here. He says, you know what, I want to give you something. I want to be able to strengthen you. That's the idea to fix something or to establish something to confirm it into place. He really wanted to do that. And that's where he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, the role of any Christian is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. See, that's what was Paul's heart. That's what he wanted to happen. He desired the body of Christ to be built up. But the only way that can happen, beloved, is when we do it with biblical servanthood and authenticity and honesty it's not going to happen if we're if we're dishonest with who we are or we're dishonest with who we're ministering to or we're dishonest with who God is and so i pray this morning that as we come before the lord's table that we can truly look at our own heart and realize that that first of all we know the lord that that we understand God's gift of Christ, and, and we've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So when we come to this table, this means something to us. If you're not there yet, that's okay. We just ask that you pass the plate along, and, and, and nobody's going to say anything or point or anything. We're not here to embarrass anybody, but we also want to make sure that we understand what we're going to do here with communion. This is a picture of grace. It's not a means of grace. God won't like you more if you take the little cracker and the grape juice with us. That's not the idea. It's basically a symbol of something that was done by Christ on our behalf. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Lord, that biblical servanthood, just like it was in the life of Paul, can be in our life as well. If we yield to your spirit, if we follow Christ as our mediator... And understand that you're our source. Lord, and all this is for your glory. We're not in this for our own glory. If we are, that's wrong. And so, Lord, I pray that we would check our own motivations at the door. That we would understand that when we come here Sunday morning, that we desire to serve you. We desire to worship you. We desire to give our all to you. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time as we come to this table. Pray that if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, it's never too late. Lord, you saved the thief on the cross before he died. Truly, you can transform a heart here this morning. If they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand this man's words. Help me to understand that, that I don't have any righteousness in and of myself. I want this righteousness that he speaks of that's available through Christ and the forgiveness. That's a prayer that God will answer. He'll touch your heart. He'll bring you to a point of repentance. Father, we thank you and we praise Jesus' name. Amen.